I'm going to start this morning in uh, Haggai, the book of Haggai, chapter 2. I know your Bible just automatically falls open to that book, so I'll give you a few minutes to get there. I've, um, uh, I've got some uh, good news and bad news. Good news is I've got a message from the Lord. Bad news is it's a long one. For those of you that know me, I, I don't generally preach from notes. If I do anything, I'll just come with a scripture written down or something like that. Uh, I've got three pages worth of notes. And uh, I know somebody said, oh, no. You know. <laughs> Actually, the three pages worth of scriptures. What I want to do is I want to read a lot of scriptures this morning. And, and rather than it would take too much time to, to turn to each one of these in, in, the, in the Bible. So my plan is to just read these as I have them printed out and and uh, I'll encourage you, I think it would be good for you if you have the time or to take the time on your own to, to write these scriptures down, scripture references down, and then read them for yourselves. But uh, I, what I have on my heart to, to speak about for the next uh, several weeks is the glory of the Lord. Now, in Haggai chapter 2, God is speaking about end-time events. Now, at the point in time that, uh, uh, that this uh, prophecy is given, these words are given to the prophet Haggai, Israel is trying to build the second temple. Now, there were three temples in Israel's history. The first was Solomon's temple. We'll see a little bit about that in one of the scriptures that we'll read later. Um, the second temple is what they're trying to build. Now, when, uh, when Israel disobeyed God, that's when the temple was destroyed. The first temple was destroyed. And then later, after they were coming out of uh, Babylonian captivity... Uh, they were attempting to reestablish themselves in their own land and, and rebuild a temple. Now, the, the second temple that they built, the Bible has some interesting things to say about that. It was, it was certainly the will of God that they do so. It was certainly God's plan for them to reestablish the temple, and they reestablished the temple worship and the sacrifice and all the things that go along with it. But there were those older, m- people that were much older, that were alive when the second temple was dedicated that remembered the first temple, Solomon's temple. And it says that they cried because of the condition of the second temple as opposed to or in comparison to the first temple. It, it, it just was nothing. There was, there was no visible presence of God there. There was, uh, there was nothing. There was just, it was nothing in comparison. The, 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 the furniture and the, the gold of Solomon's temple, it wasn't there for the second one. And, uh, and then the third temple we know of is Herod's temple, what's called Herod's temple. That was the one that was in place in Jesus' day. You remember one time Jesus was walking through the temple and his disciples were just oohing and aahing about this temple. They said, oh, have you ever seen a building like this? Isn't this beautiful? Well, Herod did the best that he could in, in, in well, that's the wrong way to say it, but what I mean is Herod tried to make the, the temple at Jerusalem so great and so wonderful because he was the procurator there. He was the judge or the governor over that, that territory. And so he was trying to create something that not only attracted people to it, but also magnified himself through the building of the temple. But it wasn't done for the purpose of God. It wasn't done for anything except Herod was trying to make a name for himself. Herod was known throughout Roman history as the great builder. And so he built a, a temple that was pretty much a shrine to himself. And, uh, and so Jesus wasn't impressed which tells us that it's not just the appearance of things that God's concerned about. Now, God, when he, God instructs things to be done, like the first temple, things are done well. But just gold and silver and, and, and pretty-looking things by in and of itself doesn't mean anything to God. Because Jesus said, Jesus kind of scoffed at the disciples' uh, uh, comment about the temple, isn't this such a beautiful place? And Jesus said, there's a time coming where there's not going to be two stones left sitting upon each other on this thing. In other words, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be nothing. It's nothing in God's eyes now. It'll be nothing in man's eyes too. Well, Haggai chapter 2 is during the building of the second temple. Now, we know that whatever, uh, we know what the end result is of the second temple, and that is it doesn't compare to Solomon's, the first temple. So keep that in mind as we read the things that God says about this temple and about the, the uh, uh, well, he's really talking about the church, not about the building itself, but they don't know that at the time. So it says, beginning in verse 7, Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, God says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. He's talking about end-time events. Anybody see any shaking going on in the world now? Now, up until this point in time, up until our present day, what would we think shaking means? 
most probably we would think there would be earthquakes. We would be thinking in natural terms because one of the signs Jesus said was of the end would be there'd be earthquakes in diverse places. So for years and years the church read this and said, well, shaking all nations, that must mean earthquakes just going, uh, going on all over the world. But look at the economic shaking that's taking place in the world that we live in. See, we've got to be careful that we don't put our own interpretations on the thing God says and miss what he's saying. And that's real easy to do. I've done that. I've had God speak to me individually, personally, about certain things, and I put my own interpretation on it and missed him completely. Then after the fact, I'll see later on, I'll say, oh, well, that's what he was saying. He wasn't talking about what I thought. He was talking about this. I think a lot of people do that with these kinds of scriptures. So he said, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Notice what Jesus, what, uh, what the Holy Ghost is saying through the prophet Haggai. He says the end result is that the house of God will be filled with glory. Now, as, as I mentioned before, I need to reiterate again, he can't be talking about the second temple. Because the second temple is what the first temple people, the ones that saw the first temple, looked at and said, this is nothing. So he can't be talking about the building itself. So he says, I'll fill this house with glory. If he's not talking about the temple at Jerusalem, what's he talking about? Well, the New Testament tells us that the house of God is the church. So whether they know it or not, God is telling them the temple will be built, it will be rebuilt, but my plan is for the glory to be seen in the church. Can you see that? That's easy to understand, isn't it? Should be if we know anything about history. So he says, I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, maybe I'll stop for a minute and talk about the desire of all nations shall come. You remember the Bible says in the New Testament, it says, the whole earth is groaning and travailing until it receives the appearing of the manifestation of the sons of God. Well, what that's talking about is it's talking about end time stuff. It's talking about the rapture. It's talking about the whole earth is groaning and travailing. The earth is under a curse and the earth is groaning and travailing. There are things that are taking place in creation itself, the inanimate creation itself, because it has a touch of God. God's the creator. The earth didn't evolve. God created it. And as such, the earth is groaning and travailing. Now why? Because it was not created in sin. It was not created to be dominated by sin. The creation... Anything and everything that God creates, anything and everything that God has a hand in, anything and everything that God touches, rebels against sin. Your spirit rebels against sin. Your flesh, not so much. But your spirit rebels against sin. The earth is rebelling against sin. And as a result, the desire of all nations is to be free, to be lifted from the curse of sin upon the earth. Now, there's a difference between the curse of the law and the curse of sin upon the earth. We know what the curse of the law is. The curse of the law is spiritual death, poverty, and sickness. The curse of sin upon the earth is what God told Adam. He said, from this point forward, you'll have to earn a living by the sweat of your brow. It hasn't brought forth thorns up until this point, but from here on out, it'll bring forth thorns and thistles and other stuff like that. That's the curse that's upon the earth. That's what the earth is rebelling against. That's what the earth is travailing about until a certain point in time comes. What the Bible says that point in time is the manifestation of the sons of God. He's talking about our redeemed bodies. He's talking about the rapture. So the earth is travailing. The earth is, is rebelling against the law of sin and death in the earth, the curse that's upon the earth, until the point in time when the rapture comes, and then things change. It becomes a new dispensation from that point on. So this is the, the time frame that he's talking about. These things he's talking about, the, the, I'll fill this house with glory, he's talking about is in relation to the end. It's in relation to the rapture. It's in relation to the closer we get to the end, the closer we get to the rapture, the more and more and more of this we can expect. Get the context? And I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, whatever you think about this, whatever you think about prosperity, whatever you think about provision, whatever you think about silver and gold, whatever you think about the, the 99% versus the 1%, whatever you think about any of this stuff that's going on in the earth, please notice God connected silver and gold with glory. Thank you for your enthusiastic support. There's a connection or else God wouldn't have said so. Now, I'll let you figure out for yourself what the connection is. I, I don't really care to argue with people about it. I know what it is. It satisfies me. I know what my job is. I'm good. Let the ignorant be ignorant still. Thus saith the Lord. 
That is scripture, by the way. That is what the Bible says. So there's a lot of Christians that want to argue about this, that, and the other. But God connects silver and gold with glory. Why? Is God worried about running out in heaven? Folks, he's got asphalt that's gold. God uses gold for asphalt. Silver and gold is not necessary in heaven. He's not concerned about it there. He's concerned about it here. Why is he concerned about it here? Because the house that he's going to fill with glory is people. And he knows that it takes money, silver and gold, resources to do the work that needs to be done the closer and closer and closer we get to the end. So for those of you, not those of you, for those who refuse to believe that God has an economic plan for his people in the last days, bless you. My Bible says that he does. I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Did you notice he said it's his? Why? Because he created it. Did he say it's in his hands? No, because it's not. It's in the hands of the devil, because the devil is the god of this world. The devil took Satan's, uh, took Adam's authority and became the god of this world. And as a result, the silver and gold is in the devil's hands. But that doesn't seem to be where God wants it. According to your faith, be it unto you. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. Now, if, if the Jews that are hearing this during the building of the temple, they're thinking, whoa, this is great. That means the second temple is going to have greater glory than the first temple did. But that's not the way it went, is it? I'm sure if I had been alive in that day, I would have thought naturally just like I'm sure they thought. They thought he's talking about the glory of the second temple, the glory of the second house of God that's dedicated to the Lord. That's going to be a greater glory than Solomon's temple, but it wasn't. No record that when the second temple was dedicated, we don't even know about the second temple being dedicated. We don't see any record of the glory of God coming on that place like it did in Solomon's temple. We don't know anything like that. So he must not be talking about the building. Right? The glory of the the latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Okay. What does that mean then? If he's not talking about the building shall be filled with greater glory, what is he saying? He's saying God's plan for the church at the end was greater than his plan in the beginning when we saw the glory of the Lord in Solomon's temple. That says to me, you decide, you judge this for yourself. Don't take my word for it. You pray about it and and judge it for yourself. You've got the same Holy Ghost I do. But that says to me that God's plan is for the glory of God to increase the closer and closer and closer we get to the end. Otherwise, why is he talking about the end? Why is he talking about things related to the rapture? Why is he talking about the glory? Why is he talking about the gold? Why is he saying it's going to be greater at the end? Folks, God's not trying to keep information from us. He's trying to reveal it to us if we'll dig for it and understand. Amen? Now, there are several scriptures. We won't take time to look at them this morning because I'm already out of time. But there are several scriptures that the Bible says the whole earth will be filled with His glory. The whole earth shall be filled with His glory. Now, what does that mean? David said it in the Psalm, uh, what is it, Psalm 73, I think it is. David said the whole earth shall be filled with His glory. What does he mean? Another place that he said that, we may look at this one, is in Numbers chapter 14, verse 21. After the children of Israel send the twelve spies into the land of Canaan. Ten of them come back with an evil report. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, come back and say, we can do what God said. Let's just trust Him. They believe the majority report and they rebel against God and fail to take the promised land. It cost them 40 years in the wilderness because of their disobedience. It wasn't God's plan. They aborted God's original plan, just like you and I can do in our own lives. But the people then, when they found out we can't do this or when they decided we can't do this and, and, and you know, oh, what are we going to do now? We're, we can't go back to Egypt. Now we're left to, to be on our own in this wilderness. This is a terrible thing. It's Moses' fault. And, of course, that's always what happens. When people don't like what God says, they pick the leaders and say, it's their fault, let's kill them. And so Moses now is being threatened by the children of Israel, and the glory of the Lord appears before the people to protect him. And then God says, Moses, get out of the way. I'll destroy these people and start over with you. Now, if I was Moses, I would have said, Lord, that is a great idea. 
who better could you start with? <laughs> Moses, however, says, Lord, you can't do that. Because everybody will say the whole reason you delivered them from Egypt is to bring them out here and kill them. They'll talk bad about you if you do that. You can't do that. Pardon them according to my word. Please forgive them. And then the Lord says, all right, because you've asked me, I will forgive them. I will pardon them just like you've said. But, and this is Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, as truly as I live, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, I personally think that has a lot of meanings. The earth was certainly filled with the knowledge of God's glory as, as Israel took Canaan land 40 years later. When Joshua became the leader of the children of Israel and led them in, there were enemies were defeated right and left daily. There were, there were great things that were done, supernatural things that were done. Uh, the Bible talks about the Jordan River was parted. It talked about the, the waters heaped upon themselves like 20 or 25 miles north and stopped there. And I mean, everybody saw, everybody knew, everybody understood those things. So I have no doubt that God is saying, I will make myself known among the people. But the way that he says it seems to indicate to me that it has some reference to these kinds of things where the glory of God shall be seen more and more the closer and closer we get to the end. So let's start looking at some of the scriptures. I am by no means going to read all the things that the Bible says about the glory of God. We, we wouldn't have time. Just absolutely wouldn't have time. But I've picked and, and, and picked out certain ones, uh, quite a number of them, but I picked out certain scriptures that I want you to see related to the glory of God, where the Bible says, I will fill this house with glory... It says, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. What is he talking about? What does he mean? If we just stop there, then you're going to be thinking glory is one thing. I'm thinking glory is something else. How are we going to know? If we don't use the Bible as our definition, how would we know what to look for? So let's use the Bible as our definition. Exodus chapter 16, verse 7. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for that he heareth your murmurings, against the Lord, and what are we that you murmur against us? This is Moses talking to the children of Israel. Verse 10, And it came to pass, as Aaron spake unto the cold congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Exodus 29, verse 43, And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. This is the tabernacle in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 35, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Leviticus chapter 9, verses 4 and 6. Also a bullock and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a meat offering mingled with oil, for today the Lord will appear unto you. Verse 6. And Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded that you should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. Verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. Numbers chapter 14, verse 10. This is where the children of Israel rebelled against God, sent the twelve spies in that we were talking about. But all the congregation, Numbers 14.10, But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. Numbers chapter 16, verse 19. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them, against Moses and Aaron, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. Verse 42. And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation. Behold, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Numbers chapter 20 and verse 6. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And they fell upon their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 10. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. This is Solomon's temple, the dedication of Solomon's temple. Verse 11. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Second Chronicles chapter 5. Here's Second Chronicles' account of the dedication of Solomon's temple. Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place 
for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. That means they all went in at once. Also, verse 12, also the Levites, which were the singers, all them of Asap, of Heman, and of Jeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. Verse 13, And it came to pass, even as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. Verse 14, So that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven. Again, this is the dedication to the temple. Continued in the, the same uh, uh, service of dedication. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Psalm 63, verse 2, it says, To see thy power and thy glory, so as, I've, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Psalm 73, verse 24, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Folks, I want you to understand, there is a very real glory world. That's where we're headed as believers, as Christians. That's where we're headed after this life is over. It is the glory realm or the glory world. Why should it be a strange thing that we see a little bit of glory here? There's a whole world. There's a whole realm that you and I are going to live in. Why would it be a strange thing for us to see it here? Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 4. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Here, instead of speaking of a cloud, it speaks of smoke. Isaiah 35 verse 2. It shall, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Isaiah 58, verse 8. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thy health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rear reward. Isaiah 59, verse 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall rise up a standard against him. Notice in Isaiah 58 it speaks of uh, glory in relation to healing and health and righteousness. In Isaiah 59 it speaks of the glory of the Lord as being a defense against the work of the enemy. Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall rise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of rain, in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and heard the voice of one that spake. Now, that's the, verse 28 is the end of the first chapter. It goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, to speak of the same things. And he said unto me, the, the rainbow cloud, the glory that appeared like a rainbow. And he said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me, and set me on my feet, that I heard him that spake unto me. Now, you see many times where the glory of the Lord appears and people can't stand. Here it says the glory of the Lord set him upright. A lot of people get upset when people fall under the power of God. You lay hands on people and people fall. You wait till the glory of God starts setting them up. That's what the Bible says. Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 23. Then I arose and went forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there as the glory which I saw by the river of Chebar, and I fell on my face. And behold, uh, Ezekiel chapter 8, uh, verse 4. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, according to the vision that I saw in the plain. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 4. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. 
I'm just now starting on the third page of scriptures. Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 2 and 4 and 5. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Ezekiel chapter 44 and verse 4. Then brought he me by the way of the north gate before the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell upon my face. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. Here's the story of the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. <coughs> Luke chapter 2 and verse 9. Here's one we know about in the, the Christmas story. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Luke chapter 9, verse 29 through 34. Well, 29, 30, 31, 32, and 34. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. Here's the transfiguration account again. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, or Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, or his death, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and then when they awake, they saw his glory, and the two men that stood with him, while he, that's when Peter says, let's build three tabernacles. While he thus spake, this is verse 34 of Luke chapter 9. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. Acts chapter 7 and verse 2. Here's the story of Stephen. He was called into question uh, about the things of God, later stoned. And he said, men and brethren, here's the beginning of his, uh, of his speech. And he said, men and brethren and fathers, hearken, the God of glory... Notice what Stephen calls him. He calls him the God of glory. Appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt at Sharon. But he, verse 55, later on at the end when they start to stone him, it says, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Acts chapter 9, here's the story of uh, Paul uh, or Saul on the road to Damascus when he's going to persecute the church. Acts chapter 9, verse 3, it says, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now, what was that light from heaven? Well, he says, Paul's account in Acts chapter 22, verses 6 and 11, he said, And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh to Damascus about noon, that's the brightest part of the day, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. Verse 11, And when I could not see for the glory of that light... Being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. See, so many times, so much of the church world thinks, well, after Paul had that vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, that gave him an eye disease. Paul said he couldn't see not because of some disease or some sickness. He said he couldn't see because of the glory of the light. Now, if you took time and went to read the rest of the story there, Paul said in Acts chapter 22 that others that were with him saw the light too, but they didn't hear the voice. Well, that light they saw didn't blind them. Why was Paul blinded? Was it because Paul saw a greater glory? Or was it because God was making the point, here's your opportunity to change your ways or else? Folks, the glory of God appeared in the Old Testament as defense for Moses and Aaron when the people wanted to kill him. Make no mistake about it. And, and, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God knows the end before the beginning. God knew how this was going to turn out, but it was still up to Saul. It was still Paul's choice. God appeared in glory. Jesus appeared in glory to Paul, first and foremost, to protect his church. Paul's choice determined what's going to happen from there. You remember the story how that Ananias was had, had to be sent to where Paul was so that he could receive his sight. Lay hands on him so he could receive his sight. Finally, we'll end with these. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. 
Paul said, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. It says Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of God. As he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 says it this way. It says, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. So in Romans chapter 6, he says he's raised by the glory of God. In Romans chapter 8, he says he's raised by the spirit of God. What does that mean? That means they're one and the same. When I first got around Brother Hagin, I started hearing him tell some stories about his own experience. Uh, his experience was that he was uh, he he was born with a uh, he was born at uh, weighing like one pound, born uh, many months premature, and as a result he had all kinds of problems. He had uh, a heart condition. He had blood conditions. He, he, there were all kinds of things in his body that hadn't developed and and uh, and so forth. And and so the doctors gave him virtually no chance to live whatsoever. But he did. He survived through the first first year, which they didn't expect that he would. And then finally the doctors started uh, identifying what some of the problems were. And so they said, well, we've never known anybody in medical science, we've never known anybody to live past 16 years of age in, with anything like your condition. So they pronounced a death sentence, you know, early in his teenage years or mid-teenage years. And uh, so Brother Hagin said that uh, the point in time came, he was 15 years old and just before his 16th birthday, and he, he, um, uh, he became bedfast. Became too weak. His, his blood wasn't the uh, heart wasn't pumping the blood through his body the way it should, and, and so forth. And so there was uh, uh, there were many times where he was right at the point of death, but there was one time where he he told the story about where he died, and the story was how that uh, he was conscious of his spirit leaving his body, and he he um, uh, he was caught up into a cloud, and when he was caught up into a cloud, they, he heard what he believed was the voice of the Lord saying in the English language, "Go back." Go back to the earth, first time. Second time, go back, go back to the earth. Third time, he said it a little different. He said, go back, go back to the earth. Your work's not done yet. Well, when he came back into his body, he said, I saw my grandmother, uh, or my mother, rather, by the side of my bed. She was patting my hand. She was distraught because, you know, to all appearances, he was dead, and he was. But he said, I, I came back into the room. He said, I saw my mother there by the bed. He said, I'm standing on the other side of the bed just watching everything like it's a, on a TV screen. He said, and then all of a sudden my spirit leaked back into my body through my mouth, through his mouth. He said, as, uh, as you would put your foot in a shoe. And uh, he said, then when I, was, uh, when I was back within my spirit, was back in my body, he said that I told my mom, he said, Mom, I'm not going to die now. Well, she thought he meant I'm not going to die this minute. He meant I'm not going to die now. I've got to finish a work for God. And he lived, you know, until he was uh, just before his 87th birthday. And, uh, and as a result, uh, he said that it was a real sacred thing. He said he would tell a little bit about the story and use a little bit about the experience when he was telling about the difference between, uh, you know, the, talking about the, the human spirit or believing with the heart or some things like that. He'd tell just little bits and pieces. He said, but it was, it was too sacred a, uh, an experience for him. He, he just didn't feel like it was right to tell about it. And he said it was some 20 years later that the Lord spoke to him. He was well into his ministry then, and, and uh, the Lord spoke to him, and he said, you need to tell the story. So he did, and he had a radio program at the time, a little local radio station there in uh, uh, the part of Texas where his family still lived. And so he told the story about what had happened to him, and, uh, and he came back home after, I don't know, a month or so, being out on the road and doing meetings in different churches or whatever it was. And, and, uh, and his, his mother said to him, uh, son, I heard you tell your story on the on the radio about when you died. He said, yeah, yeah, I did. He said, I, I felt impressed of the Lord to start telling the story. And she said, well, let me tell you my side of it. Now, it's been 20 years, and they'd never even talked about this. And so she said, let me tell you my side. She said, Pat, that was his youngest brother, was with you. He came running in to the kitchen where... Uh, Brother Hagen's mother and grandmother was. They were living with, her, with uh, his grandparents on his mother's side. And uh, he said, Pat came running in and said, Mama, Mama, Ken's dying. She said, so I went running toward your room. She said, I was the first one out of the kitchen running toward the room. She said, when I got to the, to the door of your bedroom, she said, I looked and I could not see into the room. All I could see was a cloud. Did you notice how many times the Bible talks about the glory of the Lord appearing like a cloud? 
She said it was like a white cloud or a fog that was in the room. She said, I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see any furniture. I couldn't see anything except the white cloud. She said, and I'm running as fast as I can to go into the room. She said, I hit that white cloud and bounced off of it. Did you notice how many times it says the priest couldn't enter because of the cloud? See, we put our own thinking and our own interpretation about what that means. Well, what does that mean? Well, if they couldn't enter, that means they couldn't get in. Well, she's saying she couldn't get in. She said, it it stunned me. It didn't hurt, but she said it stunned me. And she said, I recognized, I sensed the presence of God here. Well, about that time, Granny, her mother, Brother Hagin's grandmother, comes running. She's got a full head of steam up. She gets to the door and, and tries to bust into this thing, and she bounces off. And as she bounces off, it knocked her back, and she grabbed hold of some piece of furniture or something to steady herself. And she said, Lily, Lily, that's Brother Hagin's mother's name. She said, Lily, I can't see into the room. Well, Brother Hagin's mom, Lily, was standing there praying silently, praying quietly to herself. She sensed the presence of God. But Granny wasn't going to have any of that. So Granny took another run. She bounced off the second time. She comes back and says the same thing. She says, I can't see him. Well, this time she backed up all the way across the dining room. She's going to get a run at the big head of Steve. This is his mother. This is Brother Hagin's mother telling him all this, how this, how this went. She bounced off the third time and was so overcome when she hit it the third time that she had to grab hold of a chair or something that was close by to keep from falling on her face in the middle of the floor. Well, that was it for granted. She was done. Do you notice how many times people came in contact with the glory of God and they fell? See, again, we put our own interpretation about that. Or maybe we'll judge that by some experience that we've had. Maybe we'll see somebody lay hands on someone and then fall in the Spirit and they think, well, that's all there is to the power of God. That's all there is to the glory of God. Listen, folks, the glory of God is a very real thing. And when the glory of God comes in contact with flesh... In great manifestation, now there are lesser and greater manifestations of the glory of God, but when the glory of God is in great manifestation, you just try to keep on your feet. You think you're going to show God something? It's not the way it works. So anyway, Brother Hagin said that his mother told him the story about how that, that after she said it was about 10 minutes. Now here's one thing that she said. She said, well, when you told the story, you made it seem like you were gone for just a few seconds. And he said, well, yeah, Mom, that's the way it seemed to me. <laughs> it's not like I had a watch. That's the way it seemed to me. She said, well, let me tell you the story. And as she related the story, it was 10 minutes before that fog started to lift. She said, finally, it began to dissipate, not disappeared, but all of a sudden it began to lighten up. You ever seen fog in the morning and then as the sun starts to come up, it gets less and less and less and you can see a little bit more through it? Well, that's apparently the way it was with this. And so she said, I can, she starts talking to her mom, say, mama, I can see the dresser now. It was close to the door. Now I can see the bed. Now I can see Ken on the bed. Finally, when it was all gone, they could get in, but not before. And that's when she was standing there next to her, or kneeling down next to his bedside, and he said to her, Mama, I'm not going to die now. Well, I heard things like that, and I thought, wow, my goodness gracious. Who knew that people could have experiences like that? And, and, and from my heart... I accepted it because I saw certain things in the Bible, and Brother Hagin will always prove what he was saying by the Bible. You've got to be careful about people's experiences because you can have any kind of experience, and sometimes it might be God, and sometimes it might be because you ate the wrong thing too late at night. <laughs> you can't just judge somebody's experience or somebody's dream or somebody's vision or anything else like that. If it, if it bears witness to what the Bible already says, then you can accept the experience. But if it doesn't, throw it away. Now, what I mean by that is you can consider it, you can think on it, you can put it on a shelf, but don't let it guide you. I hear a lot of people talking about experiences that don't have anything to do with the Bible. So, I would hear things like that, and from my heart, I would accept them and I'd say, wow, that's great, that, that's really something. But I'd never had anything like that, or at least I didn't recognize that it was anything like that. I didn't have any kind of experience like that. I didn't have anything that I could ever see. I didn't have anything I could put my finger on. And so I questioned some things. I mean, I, folks, and, and let me just say up, up front, I don't think it's wrong to ask, to ask questions. I know a lot of people take a position with the things of God that, well, you should never question God. I question God about everything. He doesn't seem to have a problem with that. I know a lot of Christians do, but he doesn't. Because if something's real and if something's true, God will show you. I think this, this wrong idea about this thing called blind faith. 
People just talk about, well, blind faith. You just have to believe it blindly. Folks, faith is never blind. Faith always sees the end result. Faith may not be able to see how I get from point A to point B, but it always sees point B. Point A is easy to figure out. So faith is never blind. The Bible always gives you the answer. It always gives you the end result that you should pray and believe toward. So this idea about blind faith, to me, that just, that just causes people to, to not know why they believe what they believe. God wants you to understand. He's intelligent. He can communicate with you. He expects you to be intelligent too. So I've always questioned everything. Well, there are some things like that where it comes to people's experience. I see it in the Bible and, okay, I accept it, but I've never seen it. I've never experienced anything like that. So what do we do about that? When I start, first started working with Brother Hagen, I, I began working... Uh, uh, Rayma's two-year school. And so between my first and second year of Rayma, I began to travel with Brother Hagen. Now, at that point in time, that we did uh, different meetings and crusades in different ways uh, during the time that I worked for him. But that summer, we were going to do a series of one- and two-night meetings up in New England. And Brother Hagen had not been to New England in, in uh, many years. His ministry was not real well established there other than people being familiar with his books or to whatever degree they were familiar with his books and his materials. So we didn't know what kind of crowds to expect or anything like that. So here we are. I'm brand new on the road. I'm, I, my basic job is gopher and catcher. I'm the guy that has to make sure that all the materials are on the, on the truck. I'm the one that has to make sure that, that we have everything that we need for while the crusade goes on. And, uh, and then when the crusade starts, I'm the guy that they have as a catcher in the healing line. Now, some people have problems with catchers. Because you'll have some people, and bless their hearts, we hope someday they'll grow up and mature some. But you have some people that will say, well, if it was really God, you wouldn't need a catcher, and so why do you have them? Because there are some people that are not operating under the power of the Spirit, and they're going to fall, and they're going to sue you. That's why. If somebody is under the power of God, it wouldn't matter if you bounce them like a basketball. They're going to be okay. But for the ones that are not and trying to put on a show, they're your problem. And so my job is a catcher. And uh, that's why we have catchers around here. Why be stupid and let somebody sue you? So anyway, my job is a catcher. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the only one. I, I'm trying to recruit other people around the, uh, in these meetings to help and, and things like that. But uh, at that point in time, I was younger and I could handle things a lot better. And, uh, you know, I was just coming off of a real, uh, the height of my athletic career, whatever that turned out to be. And so I was, I was in a lot better shape. The biggest fear I had was that my pants would split as I was catching people. <laughs> and that did happen one time. So, you know, everything was okay, we're, we're, I'm, I'm, but I'm nervous, I've never done this before, it's new, I'm a I'm brand new rookie on the road, that type of thing, but I'm, I'm acting cool, I'm trying to act like I get everything under control, you know. And uh, so, first night, we're in uh, New Jersey, and it was a, um, well, I guess they called it a playhouse, it was a place that was set up not for church meetings, but it had a big stage, and I don't know, maybe it was an old opera house or something like that, and so there's a big high platform up here, and and uh, and the the, the uh, auditorium type seating, you know the I don't know what I'm trying to say theater seating. That's what it, that's what I'm looking for. So the theater seating was set up. So it was it was awful. It was terrible for for laying hands on the sick and ministering the sick because there's no there's no gap. There's no room between the front rows of the theater seats and the and the um, the platform. The only thing we've got is an orchestra pit that they raised up. It was, it was motorized, and so they raised up to make the platform bigger, that there's no room to lay hands on people. So we were having to, to get people that at the end of the service, the healing crusade, and so Brother Hagin told us a uh, vision about Jesus laying the, hands, laying the finger of his hands in uh, the palm of each and one of his hands and, and ministering with the anointing. So anybody that wants to have, healing, have hands laid on you to receive your healing, stand up. Well, the whole room stood up. And so we've got one aisle down the middle, and otherwise we've got two big, big, wide sections. And this, this place was old. It, forget current-day fire codes and stuff like that. I mean, it was, it was, they had people packed in there like crazy. And so basically everybody, and I say everybody, at least two-thirds of the crowd, is making their way out from their, their seats to one side or the other. Well, there was too many people to even set up. And so we're, we're trying to get them to come up the platform, across the platform, Brother Hagin lay hands on them and send them down the other side of the platform. Well, it instantly became a nightmare. And so Brother Hagin could see this is not going to work. 
he's up on the platform. He's trying to get us uh, to, to go as fast as we can, and we're working on it. I've told the guys how we're going to handle things and tried to work things out logistically as well as we could, but there's just no way to make it happen. And so we're bringing people across the platform. Well, as soon as Brother Hagin lays hands on people, there was a real strong anointing that night. As soon as he lays hands on people, the people start falling everywhere. Well, what do you do? Roll them off the edge? <laughs> you know, we've got to make room for somebody else to be ministered to. How are you going to handle this? So it was, a tr- it was just a real logistical nightmare. And so Brother Hagin's getting frustrated because he knows the anointing's not going to stay on him forever. So he's thinking, all right, I've got all these people now that have come that want to be ministered to, that want to have hands laid on them, and I can't get to them. What am I going to do? Finally, Brother Hagin looks at me, and he just shook his head and just started walking off the platform. Well, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means I'm fired. I, I, you know, he's got to go to the bathroom. I don't know what that means. He's just walking off the platform. So as he starts walking off the platform, I start going with him, and I started going down the thing. And then Brother Hagin leaned over to me, and he said, I'm just going to have to lay hands on him against the wall. He said, line everybody up against the wall as quick as he can. So I told everybody, pass the word on, so we're, we're now putting people against the wall. Well, all right, this is going to work, because now Brother Hagin's the only one that has to move all around the room. This is great. The problem was, we worked one side of the room. He got about halfway down, and then came back, said, all right, now set him up over there. Started coming back to the other side. When he got to this side over here, oh, my goodness. There were pillars in this old opera house or whatever it was. And Brother Hagen gets to where, um, well, how do I explain this? He comes down off the thing. He lays hands on somebody. I don't know how to explain this. It's like there's a pillar here, and, I, and I'm standing here, and I'm kind of letting him down on there. And now I've got to get around this pillar to where the other people are on the other side. Everybody understand what I'm trying to say? As I come around the pillar, Brother Hagen reaches up and touches my head. Now, folks, up until that point in time, I'm wondering, is this power of God stuff real? From that moment forward, I've got no questions. After it was done, I come to myself and realize Brother Hagin is on the other end of the, pl- other end of the building, laying hands on people all along the way. Afterwards, he, and he finished laying hands on people at that, at that point, and then he slipped off over to the side room or whatever. We closed the service and dismissed everybody, and, and it was just going to be there that one night. And so I go back into the back room. I'm still dizzy. I'm dazed. It wasn't like I passed out. It wasn't, I've, I've had concussions before. It wasn't anything like that. But it's like, I, I don't know where I am and don't really care. <laughs> and so Brother Hagin asked me, he said, where'd you go? And I'm thinking, I don't know, (laughs) but I liked it. That was my first experience with the glory of God or with the power of God. Now, now for me, those terms are interchangeable. Now, after that experience, I told Brother Hagin he got a big kick out of it and and that type of thing. But then I had to be honest with him. I said, Dad, I said, I really think God did that on purpose. He said, why, Mike? He said, because I was wondering. I've never fallen under the power of God. I've never experienced the power of God like that. I, I said, I just didn't know. I didn't really know if people were putting on something or not. I just didn't know. And he smiled, laughed a little bit about it, and he said, well, do you know now? I said, yeah. And then so I started picking up stuff and started going around to do something else that I was you know, supposed to do. And then Dad asked me something after that. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about your dad in the hospital? Huh? He didn't say another word. I just looked at him, and instantly I knew what he was talking about. Instantly I knew what he was talking about. Now, what he did was he was moved by the Holy Ghost to tell something that he didn't know. I'd never told him, never told anybody about this. But he was moved by the Holy Ghost to say something to me that would spur my understanding that here's what it's like when the presence of God comes in. When my dad was, um, uh, my dad died at 47 years of age. And I, I didn't, at the time, I didn't know how young that was. And um, we, had, we had tried to do some things. Um, God had healed my dad once before of cancer. Of, uh, he had cancer in his kidneys and, and, uh, and, and God healed him. The, the doctors went in and took this thing out, but where they said it had, had eaten away his kidneys, it, it turned out to be that it encapsulated his kidneys instead, and it just peeled off like you'd peel off a, an orange peel. And, uh, and, and my dad knew that was God, but he was one of those guys that, that fell into the category where, like Jesus told the one man, he said, go and sin no more lest the worst thing come on you. My dad just wouldn't live right. 
He just wouldn't. He knew some things. Could have, should have done some things, but he just wouldn't live right. Well, he contracted lung cancer, and he had smoked all of his life from the time he was 12 years old. My dad was about 6'4 at 12 years old, and so everybody mistook him for an adult, and so he, he started doing a lot of things as just a young kid that never should have done, and, but got away with it. So he had smoked uh, packs and packs of cigarettes all of his life. I never knew my dad not to smoke. And uh, so anyway, when lung cancer got him, then... Um, then they started. The doctor started trying to do some certain things. I didn't know until the, the time that he uh, got cancer. But you, apparently, you've got three lobes or three sections to each one of your lungs. Well, they can only take two sections of one lung and one section of another lung, and after that, you don't have enough lungs to live. Well, they did that. They wound up taking as much as they could off of my dad, and and uh, and and so he started to suffer for for a while. He was um, he was struggling and trying to get his faith to, to reach out to God and stuff, but he just didn't just never had any confidence because he knew what God had done the first time and how he had responded. And so, uh, um, time came where my dad was getting worse and worse. He was he was coughing up stuff, spitting up stuff. It was just a just a terrible thing, excruciating thing for him. And uh, so he wound up in the hospital. Had been in the hospital a number of times, a VA hospital. And uh, so I went to visit him one. Uh, Saturday, and uh, he was in the hospital, and so I'm sitting there in the room, and my dad and I never really had much to talk about. It was, uh, we never had much of a relationship to begin with, and so when he got sick, you know, it's not like we can talk about the good old days or anything like that. So I'm sitting in the, in the hospital room. I didn't know what to say to him. I'm just starting to believe God at that point in time. He's saying that he's believing God, but nobody really that was close to him believed that. We could see, you know, even then we could we knew a little bit about the difference between the real thing and the counterfeit. So I'm sitting there in the in the hospital room, just reading a magazine, flipping through a magazine, and my dad speaks up and he says, uh, "Son, I almost didn't make it last night." And I said, uh, "I said, what happened, Dad?" He said, "Well, he said I, I just started having one of these coughing fits, and he said I, I just he said I, I thought it was gone, I thought it was done for." And I smiled and I said, "Well." Thank God you made it. I don't know what I'm saying. And as soon as I said that, thank God you made it, there was something that came into that room. It was cool. It was peaceful. And it scared the bejeebers out of me. Do you notice how many times they talked about how they entered into the cloud and they were afraid? It scared me. I mean, it frightened me. Now, I knew that it was God after the fact. I didn't at the time because I had no experience with the things of God. I knew nothing. If, if, if I had ever known anything except the, the God speaking to me on the inside of my heart, I mean, I just had no experience in anything. And so when this presence came in the room, and it was the Spirit of God, no question about it, it was the Holy Ghost. Looking back now, I know that. Then I didn't. But when that presence came into the room, it scared me. It spooked me. And I closed that magazine, set it down, and said, Well, Dad, I said, I'm going to go. I'll see you tomorrow. Well, I didn't make it back tomorrow because my dad died in the meantime. Now, looking back at that, I know that it was God giving me a chance to say goodbye to my father. Well, I wish I had that chance back. It'd make things so much easier and so much better if I'd had the chance to say some things to him and him, him have the chance to say some things to me. But I ran. I can't tell you how embarrassed I am to say that. But it's the truth. I ran. One of the things that helped me about that years later, and, and, and here was something that happened supernaturally that God did with Brother Hagen. I asked him later on. I, I didn't say anything more to him at that time. We didn't talk about it anymore at that moment. But later on, I asked him, I said, how much do you know about that? About a year later, I said, you remember when you said that to me in New Jersey? He said, yeah. I said, how much do you know about that? He said, I don't know anything about that. He said, I just know that it was something that God told me to ask you. So then I told him the story. And he said, oh, Mike, he said, don't feel bad about that. He said, sometimes I get out in prayer. I heard him tell this later on in his ministry, later on in, in uh, years later. He'd say things like this, but this was the first time I ever heard him say it. He said, don't, don't feel bad about that. He said, I can't tell you how many times I've been afraid in the presence of God. He said, there are sometimes I get out in prayer and I get afraid I can't get back. He said, people don't want me to say that I'm afraid, but he said, that's exactly what it is. He said, I am afraid. Folks, the glory of God is a real thing. 
The power of God is a real thing. Now, there's a lot of things I want to tell you about these things. There's a lot of things I, I feel like I'm, I'm impressed by the Lord that we want to do, but obviously we don't have time. We, we've got to receive communion here and, and, uh, and, and so forth. So let me close with this. Turn with me over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Here's the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. I'll try to run through the story real quickly rather than take a lot of time with it. Jesus hears, the first part of the chapter, Jesus hears about his good friend Lazarus who is sick. And the disciples in, in expect, when, they hit, when he gets the word, they expect that he's going to leave where he is, the ministry assignment that he has going on at that point, and he's going to go over to where his, his friends are. Jesus took care of his friends. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus took care of his friends. And, and uh, Jesus says to them, he says, no, this sickness is not unto death, but that, the, that God would be glorified. And his disciples misunderstood that. And, and thought that means, well, Jesus knows he's going to get better, so he's not going to go back over there. So they said, well, okay, then, then he's going to be all right. And Jesus finally explains to them that Lazarus has died. Verse 14, Jesus said unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Literally, the word is dead means has died. He's not dead in the sense that he's not coming back because Jesus raised him from the dead. But it is a fact that he died. So Jesus literally says, Lazarus died. And when he gets over there, Mary and Martha are, are weeping. They're his sisters, and they're weeping and, and that type of thing. And, and, um, and he comforts uh, one of them. I'm not even sure which one it is. But um, uh, Martha, I guess it is, he comforts Martha, and he says uh, that, um, uh, that he's here to help now. And uh, Mary's, I think, the one that said, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And, and Jesus grieves over that and, and that type of thing. He, he had true, genuine compassion for these friends of his. And then uh, the time comes where Jesus goes out to where he's buried and he commands them. I'll start reading in uh, verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Now Martha, the sister of him that was dead, the sister of Lazarus, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinks, for he's been dead four days. Interesting what people care about, isn't it? Now... Um, I've never had an experience where the dead were raised, but it's coming. The Bible says it belongs to us as part of the authority we have. It's, it's coming. But in talking to some people that have, one of the outstanding things that I've recognized, and, and, and I don't know that they've compared notes, but, but my comparing people's stories, one of the things that I've recognized about when the dead are raised is an overwhelming sense of doubt. See, we've got the idea that when God's power is in its greatest manifestation, you know, lightning flashes from heaven and gr glorious things are done. But don't think for a minute that the devil doesn't know what God's wanting to do. The devil heard Jesus when he said, I'm going to where my, my friend Lazarus has died and I'm going to raise him up. God's going to be glorified. He knows exactly what's going on here. So in many cases, what happens is there is this spirit of doubt that settles in. I know we had this where... Um, uh, uh, well, I won't go into the whole story, but there was a, a situation that I was involved in. I wasn't the one in charge, so it wasn't my doing. But I know that the concern that everybody had was, what is the hospital going to think if we try to raise this person up? How are people going to see this? What about the hospital's authority and, and the people that are in charge here and things like that? That seems to be a common thing. That's very similar to what Martha's saying here. She's saying, Jesus, he's, he's been dead for four days. He stinks. Now, in, in Jewish, according to Jewish understanding, to Jewish law, after three days, nothing could happen. Three days is the, is the signal. After three days, the body begins to in, endure corruption. It begins to decay. And so when she says he's been dead for four days, that really means something to her. That really means something to the Jews. So she says, we've got a problem, Jesus. He's been dead too long. It's too late for anything to happen for him. Folks, it's never too late for God when you're in faith. And Jesus said unto her, verse 40, I want you to get this. Jesus said unto her, didn't I tell you, said I not unto you? 
That's what that means. Didn't I tell you? That if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Folks, the thing that I want to leave you with this morning, and there's a lot, of more, a lot more I wanted to say this morning, a lot more I intend to say during this series, but the thing I want to leave you with this morning is the key to seeing the glory of God is believing for it. And the reason that I spent so much time reading some of these scriptures, and we may read them through again next time we get together, I don't know. But the reason I spent so much time reading through these scriptures is because if you don't know what the Bible says about the glory of God, you don't know what to believe for. Now here's the question. Would God do more under the old covenant than He would do now under the new? Would God do more for servants, which is what the Old Testament people were, than He'll do for His sons? Do you do more for the people that work for you or more for the people that are your family? That's the same way God operates. The Bible says we know how to be good parents to our children because of God's example. So you need to understand that there are things that the Bible has promised us about the glory of God that the further and further and further we get to the end, meaning the closer and closer we get to the rapture, the more and more of the glory of God we can expect. Any of you keep up with the news this morning? Egypt's new president is the Muslim Brotherhood guy. His acceptance speech is, our capital is not going to be Cairo, it's not going to be Mecca, it's not going to be Medina, but Allah willing will be Jerusalem. And then he starts talking about all you Muslim martyrs, you're all sons of Hamas. They, the whole group out there, however many thousands of people there were, started chanting, don't think things aren't rolling headlong toward the rapture. They are. More and more, things are lining up to the war that starts day number one of the tribulation. Now, where is the church at that? The church is in heaven at the point in time where the tribulation starts. How long have they been there? I don't know. Are they there for a day, a week, a month, a year, two years, five years? I don't know. It could be any of those things because the Bible doesn't tell you. But you know if things are progressing toward that war against Israel, we've got to be closer and closer to the end. For me, that doesn't mean hide your head in the sand and protect all your stuff. That means look up because the glory of God is going to manifest more and more and more. Folks, if you were God, would you want to have your biggest splash be in the beginning or at the end? God says His desire is to be at the end. I'd like to, I'd like to keep going and tell you more stories. I'd like to tell you stories in services where there's been a sound of a, mush, a, a, a mushing righty wind. You know what a mushing righty wind is, don't you? Where people have heard the sound of a rushing mighty wind, just like Acts chapter 2 verse 4 talks about. And everybody in the building is, sees the flash of God's glory and people are saved. People are filled with the Holy Ghost and people are healed instantly right where they're sitting. I mean everybody in the room. But I don't want to live off somebody else's stories. See, I want to use those stories as an inspiration to us, as something that's a guide for us for what God can and wants to do. But I don't want to live off somebody else's stories. I want us to have our own stories. Because God says our stories are going to be better than their stories. Amen. Folks, these are the greatest days you could possibly live. You may be looking around saying, well, my parents didn't have trouble like this. Yeah, and your parents won't see the glory you'll see either. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, I wish it was back like it was in the 80s when the economy turned around and, boy, things really started going. Listen, for those that are doers of the word, the economy will be better for you than the 80s or the 90s or the any other times. The Bible says that God has given us these things in a mystery. Well, what is that mystery? The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, what does that mean? For me, that means two things. That means the hope of eternal glory when we end this life on the earth and we're caught up into glory. We read one of those scriptures. He'll guide me in this life and after that we enter into glory. So I don't have any doubt that that's part of what that means. But folks, God's not just interested in you when you get to heaven. 
He's interested in the whole earth being filled with his glory. Numbers 14.21 means so much to me. As truly as I live, whenever God says, whenever God swears by himself, that means something. He said, as truly as I live. Literally, that phrase, as truly as I live, he only uses about three or four times in the Bible. But that phrase literally means, it is an unchanging law that I'm declaring. It cannot change, it'll last forever. And he says, as truly as I live, the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's your day and mine. That's not some good old days that we get to look back to. That's the days we get to live. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us the information you do in your word. We thank you, Father, for the understanding that comes by the Holy Ghost, the very spirit of wisdom himself, to help us to prepare for these things. Father, we desire to see the cloud of your glory, not according to our will or our wishes, but according to yours. We desire to see your power. We desire to see your goodness manifest. We pray even as Moses prayed on the mountain, Lord, show us your glory. You said if we'd believe you for it, Father, you'd reveal it to us. You said, Father, if we would obey your word, we would see your glory manifested. That's our desire, Father. Our desire is not to be some little group that just gets blessed of the Lord. Our desire is to have an impact on the world where we bring blessings to multitudes. Lord, send us to the places we can reach and equip us to give toward the places we can't go. We love you, Lord. I thank you for the times that you've tried to show your goodness to me, even with my father. You did your best. You did everything you could do. I'm so sorry that I failed to recognize that that was you and take advantage of it. But Lord, I've learned my lesson. I'll never miss you on something like that when you manifest yourself again. And I believe that's the desire of all of us, Father. To never miss it when you show yourself strong. Jesus, we declare that you are our Lord. And our Savior. Because you're our Savior, heaven is our eternal home. Because you're our Lord, your word dictates our actions in life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for dwelling in us, for quickening our mortal bodies. I thank you for the supernatural, even glorious work that you'll do in some today through this communion service. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Gentlemen, would you come forward, please? We want to wait upon the people.